Welcome to episode four of the Student Physio Podcast. This week I'll be your host and alongside me will be Brad. Yeah, welcome everybody. I'll be your co-host today. So on today's podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Dean Walker, who is a band six respiratory physio at Doncaster Teaching Hospitals. So Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. So Brad just gave us a brief introduction there to start us off. So Dean, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and your current job as well as your past roles? Yeah, so uh, so yeah, my name's Dean. I'm one of the uh, senior physios in acute services at Doncaster Rail Infirmary. So that involves uh, a lot of respiratory stuff as well as uh, general management of uh, wards and the discharge planning and being heavily involved from a uh, social perspective as well. So as I'm sure you can imagine from a... Uh, COVID, a very topical point of view at the moment. Uh, respiratory therapy really, really quite high in the uh, quite high on the agenda for for everything going on, um, especially with sort of the role that we have at Doncaster, where we lead the NIV service. So I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later on as we as we get chatting, like. But um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's really big part of uh, my life, to be fair, and, and really really enjoyed the work that I do at the minute. And what about pastorals? Um, how long have you been in respiratory for? Um, and what sort of jobs did you have prior to this? Yeah, so I've I've been in respiratory about so June 2019. I started as a senior physio. Uh, I qualified in 2017, so I really didn't have a long time as a band five before I knew I wanted to progress into a band six role. Um, I knew coming away from uh, Bradford University, like you guys, that um, I was going to go into respiratory care or into acute services care. I, I, I'd be lying if I say I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my career um, at that stage, but I certainly knew that respiratory care was something that I wanted to get experience in and sort of go forwards from there. And um, it didn't take long to, to get that experience as a band five and then really start pushing hard that I knew that's where I wanted to be as a six and senior um, and turn into my specialty. So I started sort of forcing it that way on really. Um, as regards for um, how I got into physio, it was, it was quite unconventional, really. Um, I was working as a lifeguard at a leisure centre in Doncaster, and um, another member of staff just suddenly came running through saying that uh, they'd gone to a physio course, uh, and they were very excited to be going to uni. Um, and I sort of just said, oh, well, what, what's that? What is physio? And she just sort of talked through the odd thing. And um, I just thought, I, I fancy that. I think I'll give that a go. I've always been quite sporty. I, uh, I enjoy my football and I like playing a bit of golf as well. Um, so I think that, you know, naively, uh, as I'm sure you guys will appreciate as well, I thought that's what it is. I thought that's what physio is. You know, you run on to pitch with a sponge and that's about it. But as I started uni and going through that way, I tend to find that uh, there's a lot more depth to it and, uh, and there's just loads more to learn and loads more to do. So uh, getting into the NHS was a really, really big thing for me uh, once I got onto the course. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it definitely has a, a bit of a stereotype on the surface, but once you sort of delve deeper into it, it's, it's a completely different world, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think I didn't really know anything about respiratory care until probably until uh, our second year of my undergrad course, where we were told that we're doing a CVR module. And then very quickly it turned into respiratory physio or chest physio um, and just I just had no awareness you know you would think you know you'd, you'd have looked at it as an undergrad when you're going on to a course but I really hadn't um, and once we started uh, doing some of the teaching and things I, I would be lying if I say I, I got it immediately it took time to get there and then to understand it but then once I started to get a bit of a nature for what it is and uh, and our role in it then I really thought you know this 
this fits me just right and it's sort of what I want to be involved in so but I think a key thing for me with university was um, getting the right learning style so I wasn't particularly uh, mature let's say when I mean from a, from an age point of view um, when I went to uni I was about what 19 20 so a little bit older than guys that start fresh out of uh, sixth form um, into university but I, I went to an access course at Doncaster and then got on to Bradford from there and um, I, I just needed when I started that college course I just needed to know my learning style because I, I really didn't like school there was nothing wrong uh, from a social point of view it was just my school didn't uh, approach my learning that suited me and I think it took it took me a long time to really realize that uh, and once I got into university and realized that there was an element of well they might teach it this way however I can go and learn a different way you know and when I've when I've done sessions with you guys as well you know that's sort of the key that I tend to say really is that you need to get that understanding versus just learning it word for word so um, that that time at university really helped me to do that as well and then I've carried that through into my career now so I think the the sort of the teaching aspect from school is quite interesting how you were able to pick up on that back then and the you sort of your experience of teaching at the moment something we're going to come on to um a little bit later on but I suppose for part one um we'll sort of focus just purely on the respiratory physio and you were saying about sure. um you were at university and it was second year and you were looking at CVR um and chest physio specifically and that sort of sparked your interest so what was it I suppose a bit more specifically that that interested you in respiratory physio was it the practical side of things was it the theory side of things what was it for you I think the the theory side was the bit that sort of stuck out to me immediately because it was so uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this it was so medical if that makes sense yeah um you you really really felt like you were being um, involved in looking at the pathologies and um, these long-term conditions that people will live with and uh, you, you're really starting to you go into a lot of theoretical stuff that you know to be fair and becomes uh, a, a, an afterthought or just just a running thought whilst you're there um doing the the, the clinical skills whilst you're working uh, on a ward but um when you start to then think about the um uh, diagnosis that people have and you start to draw that into what you're doing from a clinical point of view everything all comes together and makes sense but i think it really was that from a theoretical point of view it was wow, this is really, really medical. I didn't think I'd be doing this as a physio and this is completely not what I expected. And um, as, as you sort of got into it a bit more, you soon realised that we have a level of importance as chest physios within a hospital. Um, there is many, many, many anaesthetists that you will come across if you go into NHS work. Um, and I'm sure if your listeners go into NHS work as well, where a lot of anaesthetists will just refer to chest physio to, um, you know, in quotes, uh, fix the patient because they're at a loss for what to add. And sometimes chest physio just, they come up with just a, an idea that nobody else had thought of that could come in support. And I think I just really liked that, having a high stature and a high uh, profile with a hospital setting and have the medical knowledge and the medical awareness. So I think that's yeah, what it was. I think um, it's funny, it's sort of come back to the, the stereotype a wee bit, you know, as you said, a lot of people just think that physios run onto the pitch, but for people who are in the medical field, chest physios have a lot of respect from, from other healthcare professionals. And um, I think I had said it in one of the previous podcasts about one of the experiences I had in the hospital with um, a junior doctor and I was alongside a band five 
from the junior doctor. Um, it was it was one of the evening shifts. It was seven eight o'clock at night, and the hosp- hospital was dead. And he was panicking. He didn't know what to do, and he had called um, the bleep for one of our band fives to come down. And this was the first time the band five had ever done chest physio. He had been on um, respiratory placement, but had never done sort of anything um, significant. And he had said that sort of the junior doctor and the sort of strut their stuff, but then they have that appreciation for a respiratory physio in terms of what they're able to do that there's no other real medical professional can, can do what they can do. Yeah, definitely. I think it's certainly when it comes to things like secretion clearance, because um, I mean, you're going to meet physio students or other physios, you know, that are in qualified work that tend to think, oh, I don't want to get involved with that, you know, when it comes to secretion clearance. But it's that satisfaction that you're yeah. called to do a role, you get in, you use your clinical skills, you do what you intend to do, you clear the secretions, and you you watch the improvement that you've made. And yeah. people sort of stand there and all like, what's he just done? I don't, I don't know what he did, but he's fixed him. And it's just these things like that. You know, we, we had a really good example from a chappy probably going here. Oh, what was that now? So November, November into December time, I think it was. Um, he, he was in with COVID and he'd been having some CPAP. Now, um, he looks like he was very much an undiagnosed bronchiectasis, so just constant overproduction of secretions. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd been asked to review him because he had a mucus plug on his left side and he'd completely collapsed that left lung. And um, over the course of what, maybe one or two days by using uh, really appropriate uh, hydration and humidification, uh, some really good manual techniques, some good positioning and just some general routine chest physio with regards to active cycle breathing and coughing and clearing. Um, they repeated the x-ray in two days and we managed to reinflate the lung. And um, I, I mean, he felt fantastic compared to what he felt two days before, but yeah. uh, very much from the consultant, it was a, oh, brilliant, you fixed him. And then they just move on to the next one and you take it as a little win yourself, you know. But it's it's that as well. It's that, it's that immediate gratification for, we're asking you to do this, you do that and you make an improvement and you move on. I tend to find with MSK, you'll get a referral, you assess them, you do a little bit, and then it tends to be a couple of weeks, and it's very dependent on what the patient will uh, go with. You know, they have to come halfway and work with you. Um, and and I, I'm just, I don't work that way. I, I like to know I've done something and see the gratification immediately, you know. And I suppose you've sort of given us a bit of an insight of, of what your, of, I suppose, different things you do in respiratory physio. What, what's your day-to-day? How, what's a typical day for you? Um, so at the minute, obviously, it's uh, very, very COVID-biased. So um, I suppose if, if we take it back to what would have been pre-COVID and then we can sort of compare that oh, to yeah. if you can I remember that remember. far back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't even remember. Um, so what we would tend to do, so our our hospital, I guess, is unique in, in essence, really. We are very much under the banner of acute services therapy versus respiratory therapy. So we will cover... Um, Every variety of wards you're going to come across, we would cover a respiratory unit, um, medical wards, surgical wards, and critical care. And now the expectation is that you can apply a role in each area, really, depending on where you're working on that day. If we were to work on our respiratory unit um, pre-COVID, we would see, like I say, you know, we, we lead the NIV service at Doncaster, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. But when we uh, would come to review people, thinking about Doncaster as well, it's a uh, previous mining town nearly every little village in the suburb had 
had mines. Um, so we're in that perfect age demographic where most people have COPD. Um, they're presenting with tactical respiratory failure once or twice a year. So we would uh, predominantly be using BiPAP as our non-invasive ventilation mode of choice and uh, treating tactical respiratory failures. You would probably see three to four, you know, maybe four to five, but five was generally our maximum really mm -hmm. um, of NIV patients throughout a, throughout a day, really. So you'd get them sorted in the morning, make a decent plan for them in the day, make sure the treatment's working, maybe do a little bit of patient care with them. And then you'd move on to your more uh, routine respiratory physio stuff. So any basic secretion clearance uh, patients and then mobility patients. The odd time we would get the um, non-routine ones. So we would get patients who have uh, neuromuscular disorders come through uh, on various wards where you might go and you might support with a, a cough assist or um, you might get some patients who are tracheostomies and you go and support with some open suction via the tracheostomies, or you might do some general um, tracky care and, and, and those sorts of things. So it really is quite diverse and expansive the more you get into it. But um, like I say, it, it can vary, it really, really can vary between, I guess, where you work and the experiences that you're gonna have. But the big thing with our hospital is we are, uh, from, a, from a networking point of view, we do have a really good reputation for our service. Um, and we're called upon because of that reputation quite a lot of the time, you know. Yeah, and it, it, it's funny, you had mentioned about sort of covering all the different wards, and that was something that I was actually going to ask you specifically about, because um, back home we sort of have a lot of community-type hospitals, and if you're working in um, inpatient services, you would generally find that you'd be um, working across all the different wards, like you said, sort of MAU, critical care, um ICU and it it's it's funny how on some days you, you might find yourself you might only be doing respiratory or you might only be doing um mobility and then on other days you just have this diversity of, of you're doing everything under the sun and you're you're here there and everywhere yeah definitely and especially you know um with you know our sort of quick access system where you're using uh, you know, you're being bleeped from one area of the hospital to the other, and you, you're quite right, you know, you, you'll be seeing a tracheostomy patient for half an hour, and then suddenly you get a bleep, and you come in to see a very young person who's fractured the ribs, and I, I don't think people really appreciate uh, that that role of physio. I know certainly members of my family, when I come home and tell them what I've been doing, um, it's just, they just don't, they don't think that's what you do, you know, and uh, I think that's what I, I like about it so much, is you've always got a a topic of discussion when it comes to your role uh, and your work role. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so just moving on um, to more about COVID, uh, would you be able to tell us how your day-to-day -day role has changed since COVID hit um, from the start and what it's looking like now? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it changed drastically within, within probably the first couple of weeks. Um, I, I can really remember one of the first days I, I knew this was, a, you know, a real real thing um that was going to hit uh, the nhs hard uh i think it was it was a friday um so you're expecting you sort of winding down for the week really and it, it we were just really picking up this was way before lockdown this is uh probably end of march time and this is at doncaster and on our ward we had um you know some new senior members of staff that had just joined the team we had some new junior members of staff that had only rotated in march so it was new to them to be getting in and getting involved in these sorts of things. They were trying to just get an exposure to the ward. 
but actually they're having to sort of step up and start being involved in stuff probably quicker than we anticipated that they would be. And I can remember being on the ward and just you, you would see one patient to set up CPAP, then you turn around and it's, oh, we've got another one down this side. Then you set that one up. Then you turn around and there's another one. We've got another one down this side. And I can remember we set up four in half an hour. And that was that was when I really came away and thought, wow, this is mental. This is going to go crazy now. And then obviously it picked on from there, of course. And um, we, we sort of didn't really get much respite until probably around coming into the summertime when, when we first came out of the lockdown and it looked like um, things were starting to ease off. I, I had no... Um, no quarrels at all that we would have a second wave just you look at previous pandemics from history and it, that's just what happens um, unfortunately you know we, we do go into second waves of things and um, then when we hit the second wave that probably hit us a lot harder than the first and for a variety of different reasons really we had uh, probably a larger volume of patients coming through the door and actually we found it harder to wean them from um, uh, CPAP support um, and try and get them uh, off onto a relatively standard oxygen therapy. We were having to use um, high flow nasal, you know, things that sometimes would be the highest we would ever go to pre-COVID, you know, for a standard pneumonia. Sometimes high flow nasal is enough to manage that, but um, it was being used for breaks because people were needing so much respiratory support. Um, so, and again, you know, it was all just about helping to build that profile of physio as well and respiratory physio. So. It really has been, whilst this sounds absolutely horrific because it's been an awful time for absolutely everybody the world over, but it really has been a bit of a uh, a, a bit of a homecoming for respiratory physio and it's really put us uh, back in that front line as well, you know, certainly from a ventilation point of view. Yeah, and obviously, like you said, um, it's for uh, respiratory physios across the board it's been absolutely hectic and MSK physios have been redeployed. Everyone's been shuffled everywhere. Um, but on top of that, if you've got a physio led NIV at your hospital, that must mean so, so much more work and so much more responsibility on your part. Yeah, hundred percent. And certainly when, you know, from, from a senior perspective as well, because then the, the um, shift senior point of view, when you're looking into band six positions, there's, there's sort of three main things that you're looking for. You're looking for clinical expertise. You're looking for a, a desire to develop other members of the team um, and work with students. And then you're looking at um, auditing and service improvement. That's sort of the three key things to look at from a senior point of view. When it came into COVID, the team in COVID, it suddenly changed from service improvement and auditing had to take a little bit of a sidestep. Uh, because we were facing something completely new. Uh, so we had to try and make sure we knew what we were doing in that initial period. And then we would assess as we go along, really, you know, after maybe that's when audits around how many people were using CPAP for and the outcomes started to come into it. Um, your service um, and your um, you know, desire to develop other members of the team sort of a change from developing band fives to developing MSK band sixes that have been redeployed into the area and things like that and supported from a mobility point of view um, <clears throat> because lots have changed since they rotated and did this work as a band five. So just the amount of support you have to give to people and yeah, you know, it definitely put a lot of strain on us as a senior team, but we've certainly come through it really, really well. Um, but it's helped us 
branching out and pushing into working with a wider MDT and stuff like that. So, so it has been really, really good for us as well. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure re-educating more experienced staff was a big challenge right in itself. Um, oh yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, would you be able to tell us a bit more about the physio-led NIV that you've got at your trust? Yeah, so, um, well, it isn't what it says on the tin, uh, tin really. So from a non-invasive ventilation point of view, um, it is physio-led. Um, so we have two main hospitals within our trust, that being Doncaster Royal Infirmary and uh, Bassett Law District General. Um, so at Bassett Law, it's nursing-led um, non-invasive ventilation, whereas at Doncaster, it is physio-led. That can cause some um, complexities, let's say, when it comes to doctors who work across sites. They may work at Bassett Law where they have an element of a role in um, either initiating NIV or the decision-making behind NIV. And then they come to Doncaster and actually we get very protective because that is our service. It's a service that we've developed over uh, 10 to 15 years and really, really worked hard to keep ours you know and we we keep it very evidence-based and updated consistently and the network that's come from that is something that we've really really worked hard for um obviously it comes with its challenges in that uh, you go from an extremely busy um, acute services therapy team where we're managing like i said earlier uh, medical wards surgical wards respiratory unit and critical care and then you throw in this unpredictability of a non-invasive ventilation service which comes with, um, you, well, obviously you never know how many new patients you're going to get a day. It quite literally is, they turn up at the doors of A&E and we get bleeps to come and see them. Um, then we have to try and, well, facilitate and support, you know, get the right doctors involved, get the right clinical specialities involved um, and look for flow pathways through the hospital because obviously we can't have somebody sat in uh, A&E uh, on non-invasive ventilation. They need managing on a ward. And it's trying to get the right people involved and we do act as facilitators for that um, as well so that's really upped our uh, upped our workload uh, those sorts of things i think through covid it's something that we've took on a lot more but um it is something that presented as, as quite a bit of a challenge really so yeah you know but it's been it's been good it's been good for it yeah um just moving on to a slightly different aspect um, so obviously, having spoken spoken to you before, um, you now this changed like the regular night shift patterns, where there's always um, physios in on the nights. Um, but usually there is the on call physio option. Usually it's um, there's band fives kind of get roped into that role. Um, so would you be able to talk about the experience, probably having done it yourself or being a senior overlooking that, and um, just a challenge? challenges associated and whether you think it's a good thing when you're looking for a job as a band five it's something to get involved in yeah of course yeah so um whichever nhs trust you go into i would fully expect that you're going to have a um out of hours service uh, written into your contract that you will obviously have to work in towards now that out of our service could either include on call um or it could include weekend working or it could include twilight working. It just depends where you apply. And um, obviously it's really important that you know what you're applying for. When I applied for Doncaster, I didn't know on-call was a thing. So um, it was a big shock to me when I was told two nights a month, I've got to go and live at the hospital and uh, I could get called out at any point to see a patient. But the thing with on-call is um, you need to, uh, the experience you get from it far outweighs 
the um, the you know prejudgmental thoughts that you'll have about talking about encore because you'll talk about encore and you know I, I do sessions with you students where I talk about encore and talking about Doncaster's encore service as well because it's a very um, notoriously high demand service uh, but it's it's just that 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 is the nature of the beast unfortunately but the experience you get from that is much better so um the way that it works at Doncaster pre let's go pre-covid and then I'll tie into what we're doing currently you would do um as a band five you would do your rotation in respiratory care um during some point in your rotation you would have about one month on um the respiratory unit where you're supporting managing patients either BiPAP or CPAP getting used to secretion clearance trying to see artificial airways trying to use a cough assist all those sorts of things depends on what the uh, you know, uh, caseload allows you to get the experiences for. Once you've picked up all those experiences, have a little bit of time on critical care as well, of course, but you're trying to um, get all those experiences together to demonstrate a competence to be on call. And that's very well supported by the senior team, sort of if you do say so myself, but uh, that's something that your seniors always will support you. If you're a band five going into it, you're always going to get support. And if you don't feel like you're getting support, you have to be vocal about it as well, because we do unfortunately get some band fives that come through, wait till the end of their rotation and say, you know what, I really don't feel like I progressed very much. or I don't feel like I had much support. You've got to be vocal. You've got to take your career progression and your development into your own hands. Yes, it is the role of the senior team to develop and support you. But we don't know if people are struggling or if people are not picking up on things unless they come and tell us. So it's really, really important from that point of view. So from an on-call point of view, once they feel that you're uh, you know, competent, they will get you doing um, two nights per month where you, um, it, it depends. It depends where you live. Obviously, guys that apply routinely, the guys that apply at Doncaster uh, live within the area. They either live within the area or they live in Sheffield. The guys that live in Sheffield um, usually come and stay on site uh, with some uh, of the, the uh, nursing accommodation that we've got there. They are... Um, well, you know, a sight, a sight to behold, to be honest with you, probably the, the best one-star hotel you'll ever stay in in your life. But they're not designed for, you know, anything in particular. They're just designed for a bed for the night, really. Uh, you can have some amazing on-calls where um, you get some excellent experience and you manage to get some sleep and you pick up some decent pay afterwards. You can have some terrible on-calls where you're seeing routine things, you get involved in uh, quite a lot of, uh, you know, planning, uh, and logistical stuff versus actually patient-centered care sort of things. And you can be doing that for hours on end. And then you can get nights where you sit in the room and you don't get called once, but you haven't gone to bed till one o'clock because you're thinking you're going to get called. So, you know, it, it is it is a, a real uh, beast of its own is on call. And it will massively vary where you work. It really, really will. So I think if people are thinking about applying to trusts where there is an on-call service, it's maybe trying to get some information about what that on-call service is. And if you know that it's not something that you're going to want to do, not necessarily avoid it, but know that, you know, you, that's what you're applying for and that's what you're going into. Um, like I say, I didn't really know anything about Doncaster's on-call service until I was hit with it and um, I went and did it. Now, I didn't mind at all. I quite enjoyed it, but um, it sort of, you know, uh, I, I got some great experiences from it and I was quite happy with that, really. Um, yeah, and then uh, as we came forward into, um, say, the, the stuff that we're doing with COVID right now, uh, we've had to change it slightly. So obviously the demands for on-call were going to be far too high 
uh, people would necessarily would you know essentially be working a night shift uh, the thing with on-call physio is you're expected to work the next day and i think that's something that people don't take into consideration you yes you're allowed compensatory rest and that's very much different between the trusts that you work in but um something to just think about when uh, we we have to think about when we changed into night shift was the demand of the on-call service once it became very apparent that people were not having any opportunity to get back to the on-call room and rest or go to sleep we quickly changed them into night shifts now i know at bradford trust they're doing twilight hours where they'll work to a certain time and then i, I would expect nurses support and take over but from a uh, from a physio point of view at doncaster we now do night shifts so uh, we'll start at half past seven in the evening work right through till eight o'clock in the morning and then from there we'll uh, sort of go forward and um, you know you, you do your shift and you you work as if you would during a normal day really you know and uh, our band fives are actively involved in that quite heavily you know they they work with us on the on the night shifts and for the new guys for the new band five starting it's actually been a really 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 nice little um dip the toe in the water about what it's like working on the night shift as opposed to throw them in at the deep end with an on-call where they've got the clinical experience but they're on their own now they're working with a senior um and they're just seeing it as a shift and then they start to add in the work later on you know about on-call and things like that Okay, so for part two now, we're going to talk a little bit about acute COVID and long COVID. And we're going to sort of talk about how um, they're, they're similar and how they're different. So, Dean, could you, first of all, give us a bit of an insight into what acute COVID is and how it would present, and then how, what long COVID is and how it would present? Yeah, sure. So, uh, acute COVID is uh, usually you'll see it written as uh, COVID pneumonitis. And which is where we get people present with um, the obvious symptoms that I'm sure everybody is aware of: acute shortness of breath, um, a persistent cough, um, and you know, uh, loss of ten, uh, loss of sense of uh, taste and smell. When they present, and they present quite unwell, from experience. Now, I don't think there's anything written about this, but my experience has always been generally from day nine onwards is when people start to present with a pneumonitis-like picture. Um, and pneumonitis is essentially what it what it says really which is an inflammation of the lungs um, and it presents very much like uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome which ARDS which people may have heard of um, ARDS is where you get a complete fluid overload within the lungs as well as an inflammatory response to the lung tissue so it's almost like uh, the lung goes into a state of shock now, when that happens, it is extremely hard to get um, ventilation. So get gas in, get oxygen in, get carbon dioxide out. Um, and this is how COVID presents. Pre-COVID, the treatment for ARDS would be to uh, intubate a patient, uh, paralyze them and prone them. So lay them on their tummy um, to try and get the best ventilation that we can. Now, with obviously, you know, there's varying severity, but with um, acute COVID pneumonitis patients, we obviously cannot accommodate that. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough critical care beds. We don't have enough critical care nurses and doctors. So what we're doing is trying to bridge that gap with CPAP, um, non-invasive ventilation. So from the outset, we're almost trying to support a extremely severe lung condition with insufficient support in some essences. Um, sometimes when it's not as severe, uh, it, it works and people recover and people do extremely well. In some cases where it is extremely severe, we are only buying time before we move them to critical care and do that uh, treatment, which is, you know, 
uh, intubate them and prone them anyway. So it really is a fine line and you are finding that day to day you are assessing people in a, in a different way. So yeah, and, so from a from acute COVID, that's, that's what that is. And that sort of day nine that you talk about, you sort of hear them talking about that in the news as well, and they sort of said day nine, day 10, and they can usually tell whether or not this patient's going to recover or this patient um, is, is, in for, is in for it. I suppose looking at the morphology or the pathophysiology, why, why is that period so critical? Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that's where sort of that inflammatory response is really starting to kick in. Uh, and that's where you're starting to find that build up of sort of both aspects. You know, you're getting the full inflammatory response of the body, uh, which, as we know, you know, a routine chest infection uh, comes with secretions because that is the body's response to it. Now, I, I'm well aware COVID um, secretions are not a typical symptom people present with. However, when we do start to hit that day nine, day 10, it does start to become a, a bit of a thing. And then when we put them on positive pressure, it's extremely drying and we start to dry those secretions out and almost make their management a little bit tougher as well. Um, so I think from an inflammatory point of view, that's sort of the time frame where things really start to come to a head there. If, if you've, you know, um, you're generally well people, let's say, or the people that are lucky enough to be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic will be likely fought off um, that immuno, over immuno uh, response in the first, eight, you know, one to nine days. And then after that, it tends to be that it's the people that um, are unlucky enough that they have this over immuno response and it, and it affects in that way, you know. And it, it, it's funny how COVID as a, an ARDS is so unique in that with typical um, respiratory syndromes, you don't have this long COVID that they've started to talk about, or you certainly don't have the same effects um, of of what long COVID's presenting as. Could you give a little bit of an insight into your understanding of it? Obviously, at the moment, it's it's sort of varying, and day to day, people are learning more and more about it. But at the present, how what's your understanding of it, and how is it um, it's sort of influencing how you're treating um, patients with long COVID, or maybe not you directly, but more community services? Yeah, so I, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head where it, it branches more into a community service and a, a sort of later in the pathway point of view. Um, one of the things with regards to long COVID, what we're finding is people are almost presenting it as if they have a, a long-term respiratory pathology, um, sometimes presenting where they, they almost look and present fibrotic. Um, now, uh, there is not much evidence to support this, but from a sort of... Um, uh, experience point of view, uh, we are finding that patients who have, um, you know, the need for CPAP or develop an ARDS-like picture, um, they do almost look like they have like fibrotic-like changes. So where you get that sort of stiffening of the lung tissue and um, it starts to get really, really uh, hard and callous and you lose elasticity reducing that gas exchange. So minimal exertion can result in massive shortness of breath. Um, so that's how that sort of translates into this long COVID picture and the recovery of that can just take a really, really, really long time. Um, and that's where it starts to put a bit more pressure on our um, community services with regards to pulmonary rehabilitation and um, general education classes as well. But as you've already sort of said, Lewis, there is that it just depends on um, the understanding, the understanding of the team that is taking this on and that's supporting with this. Everything is brand new right now. And... Um, 
it's really taken us as a as a bit of a uh, taking us for a bit of a loop. But um, even from an MSK point of view, you know, uh, people that are coming in with uh, long periods of time in hospital bed, obviously massive amounts of deconditioning. But yeah. if they are unlucky enough to have had to go through a proning element, um, you're likely dealing with a lot of neck stiffness and a lot of uh, shoulder stiffness and things like that. Um, because that's what they've had to do when they're laying on their tummy. So it really encompasses that full physio pathway, really. It does, does long COVID, and it's something we're learning about every day. And you mentioned pulmonary rehab, and that was the next point that I was coming on to. So typically, um, pulmonary rehab at the moment is sort of COPD patients, bronchiectasis, and, and IPF. And you had previously mentioned how um, long COVID sort of similarly presents um, as fibrosis. A lot of trusts at the moment are taking the pathway that long COVID patients don't get accepted into um, the typical pulmonary rehab class because of all the associated complications um, that come with that. Do you think as time goes on, long COVID will just become another branch of COPD, bronchiectasis, sort of chronic um, respiratory conditions that will be treated in a pulmonary rehab class, or do you think this is going to be something a little bit more separate? Um, I'm conscious that this isn't exactly your area as a community, but as the NHS sort of tries to manage this as a whole, it's probably not beneficial if we treat this separately um, as a separate respiratory condition. Surely it would make more sense to bring it all together in, in, within pulmonary rehab. Yeah, I think you're quite right. I think what will probably happen uh, later down the line is they will start to bring patients who are uh, suffering from this long COVID and start to treat them as um, sort of your more routine, run-of-the-mill, um, almost deconditioned patients for the most part. It's just a severe form of deconditioning um, and uh, with the expectation that they probably will recover better than somebody with COPD, bronchiectasis, pulmonary fibrosis, which are your very traditional long-term progressive conditions as well. Whereas from a long COVID point of view, yes, it goes on for a matter of months. And, you know, we don't even know. We don't even know how long it's going to go on for. But um, I think the general assumption at the minute is that these people will eventually get better and they will retain their uh, functionality and physical fitness. Whereas with a uh, COPD and a fibrosis, it's a progressive disease. Unfortunately, when we treat these patients, we are trying to educate them that this is now your life, you know. Um, and it's trying to help them manage with their long-term condition, whereas long COVID is still an element of recovery and rehabilitation from it. So um, I do think, and, and I don't think it would be, um, um, you know, equitable for services to uh, manage two separate uh, uh, entities with regards to your generic pulmonary rehab and your long COVID classes. I think eventually they sort of will merge as, as one, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. So now we're going to move on to, to part three and, and Brad's going to go into a little bit more detail about your role now as an educator and, and students on placement. Yeah, okay. So um, mainly just wanted to, just a quick summary of what it's like um, being a clinical educator, really. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, I show you it's no shock to students that are going to be listening to this that... Um, some educators are a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say pro-student, because that's probably completely wrong, but um, it, it's a bit more of a role that they hold dear to them. So um, it is a role that I really hold dear. I've always been interested in education and developing students since being a student. 
uh, and bringing on other people and developing other people. So I am very, very pro uh, student getting them involved, getting in the team, getting them doing things, getting every experience possible uh, and going out of my way to get those experiences. Perfect example, uh, one of our students today. I heard through the grapevine that one of the patients on critical care was uh, going to get a tracheostomy put in. So I made it my mission to go and get that um, doctor that was doing that and make sure my student could watch that, you know, whereas there are some clinicians who really try and leave that to, for the student to try and get that experience. So it just depends on what sort of person and what sort of uh, educator you are, you know. Us, us as educators, we are individuals, we are different people. Some educators um, are more, no, this is my clinical speciality, this is what I'm looking for, this is what I'm trying to do. And almost they uh, have students as some, you know, something that's part of the job role that they support with. Whereas there are other people like me where I actively seek any opportunity to work with students because I love to do it. And I just love to bring you guys on and get you involved. And um, I like to show you respiratory therapy. So that, you know, certainly for guys like you that are sort of on, um, uh, you know, pre-reg master's courses is this is probably the side that you didn't think you were going to see. Come and have a look at it and see what you think, you know, things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, not all for getting them, them extra opportunities and it almost the memorable things that you get out of placement, like, oh, I got to do a tracheostomy today rather than, oh, I saw eight patients and I did CPAP four times. It just gets a bit, exactly. it's, it's something exciting. Uh, so yeah. as you talked about sort of there's different types of educators, and I think that is quite a big worry for students. And it's often a big complaint um, mm. that almost the relationship with their clinical educator can affect their mark and they're worried about saying the wrong things. So the question really is what makes a good working relationship between a student and educator? Yeah, and that's a really tough question because it depends on your educator. It really, really does. It depends on who they are as a person and uh, what sort of things they look for. Now, I think the, the biggest thing that I can just get across is just be professional. At no point try to overstep those professional boundaries. You're only there for your five to eight weeks stint. Just be professional from the second you turn up to the second you leave, you know. And that's not saying walk on eggshells, but just do professional things, you know. Don't turn up late just because. Don't turn up in your uniform when, you when you've when you been asked not to, you know, make sure you're not on your phone whilst you're there. Treat it as your job. Treat it as if this is what well, this is. This is the profession you want to go into. So really have that professional approach to it. And I think as long as you're doing that, no arguments can be made about your professional approach. And then it's really hard with regards to how much, um, uh, you know, I, banter is the only word that's coming to my head really, or, um, you know personality that you can really demonstrate and, and that's not, again not saying walking on eggshells but I as a student I never felt like I wanted to do that it's not that I didn't feel that I could it's that I didn't want to I, want, I felt like if I started to bridge that gap I would find it hard to um, retain that professional element so I just stayed fully professional for the duration of my placement and that's what it was you know, always speaking respectfully as well, you know, um, we've had students in the past who um, can be confrontational with asking questions sometimes. So when you get your feedback can be, you know, if you think there's a discrepancy, 100%, but go through the right process about it. Don't just call them out about it and, you know, approach it in an appropriate way. Um, you know, and it's so hard. I think you sometimes you just have to, no matter who you are as a person, step back, analyse the room and just sort of see, see the people that you might... Um, 
be a little bit more friendly with, let's say. Um, I've had poor experience on placement. All of us as educators will have had poor placement experiences as students. And hopefully we learn from that. And, and what the lesson we should be learning is, I don't want to be an educator like that. But sometimes people do uh, do forget that, uh, you know. But yeah, stay professional is, is the biggest advice I can give, really. Yeah, I think it's a big conversation among students almost. Like if obviously we go on placement and obviously if I was in that situation, I'd want to make um, the situation for the student as best as possible. Because obviously it's quite a daunting experience going into a new hospital. You're almost like a tail, just following people around. You don't know how things work. So it's almost you try and well, you think that people would want to try and get you involved as much and make you feel comfortable. But it doesn't always seem to be the case. Um, or is it just kind of look of the draw with who you get and who your educator is and you've got to to hope for the best really yeah it almost is unfortunately you know but uh, i think if there are things that you want to see or uh, experience whilst you're there try to be forthcoming about it as well don't don't try to shy away and just see if the opportunity arises get yourself involved especially if somebody else on your course has been on that placement before and had an experience um bring that up bring that up in conversation you know be clear about what you want to achieve and what your objectives are um I, that's the, the, what we see from the best students are the ones that turn up and say listen i've just come off the back of a placement and i did amazing on that placement i can apply a lot of skills into this one this is what i want to be looking towards doing and you know if you can turn up uh, you know on your second week and say you know what i had a good week last week doing some subjectives and things i think i can do more can I, can I crack on and start doing some independent stuff if you feel you're at that stage? Then have that confidence to do that. The, the worst they're going to say is, no, I don't think you're ready. But at least then you've um, demonstrated a willingness to achieve either the highest grades or the, you know, the, um, the best experiences that you can get from it. So, yeah, be open and honest as well. Yeah, I think we've been given quite a lot of generally good advice, but just wanted to pick up on two different points. Um, so may, may, the first one being, uh, what are the most, so you can pick however many you want, but the most common mistakes that students um, make on placement that is really like a detriment to the mark? Mm. Uh, I think lack of professionalism is 100% the biggest one. Now, I think, unfortunately, in the day and age that we live in, uh, we live through our mobiles, you know, um, we've been on this call for however long we've been on and I've looked at my phone three times already. It, this is the day and age that we live in and obviously as you guys are coming through it's just going to be a consistent and it keeps coming through all the time so um your phone <laughs> don't touch your phone while you're on your placement leave it in your bag put it on silent whatever you know if you know you need to contact your um, educator during the course of the day then maybe make sure you get away into a bit of a quiet zone um so that you can make that contact don't just stand in the middle of a ward on your phone um other things like leaning on nursing stations uh, just little things that like you might not think about at the time while it's doing it or you might you know just think it's nothing that just gives the wrong impression so professionalism is a massive one and just be professional as best as you can all the way through and then probably another one is a lack of confidence you know if you come in and you think you know what i do i do know what i'm doing here Tell your educator that. Tell them you know what you're doing and that you're happy and you want to crack on and you want to progress. In the same breath, you know, if you don't feel confident, let them know where you don't feel confident so it can be uh, something to progress on. But 
uh, you know, and yes, I know you guys have a lot of uni work to do, but if there's an area you pick up on that you're not confident in, do some reading around it, you know, don't be afraid to get your own learning. You can't just expect that, you know, even as a qualified member, as a senior member of staff, I still do external learning, you know, I don't just take it all from my, ex my clinical experiences. So don't be afraid to do, um, you know, additional learning, but make sure you understand it. Don't just learn it word for word and not be able to apply it. Make sure you understand what you're reading and listening to. Yeah, and then just on the back of that, if we go to the opposite end, if you could pick one main thing that makes the best students stand out and how they reach them and top grades, what would it be? Uh, students that are really forthcoming with um, what they think their objectives are, you know, um, certainly the ones that you can tell within the first couple of weeks are uh, performing probably at a higher standard, but then they take that next step further in coming forward and saying, right, I'm doing well in this area. Now I want to progress. They, they're vocal. They talk about their ambitions and their objectives. They don't just wait till midway and say, oh, well, you know what? In first week, I think I could have done this. It's tell them straight away, you know, oh, I think I could progress on this. For me, you know, um, one component of um, student marking criteria that I don't think any of you guys should really struggle in getting a good mark for is reflective practice, you know? be vocal about it write it share it with your educator you know put it under the nose all the time listen i've been thinking about some of the stuff we did last week i've been thinking about this assessment i've been thinking about that and just be so on it and you know uh forthcoming with those sorts of things and then you've put it beyond all reasonable doubt that you should be getting the highest marks because you're coming forward with your reflections you're doing them independently and you're doing them consistently they're the two key things for the highest marks in all of the criteria. If you can be independent with your um, skill set and if you can be um, consistent as well. So they're the key things. Yeah, I definitely think it comes back to having a good relationship with your educator and the communication aspect, being able to establish a good working environment and being able to communicate and feeling confident to speak to them and talk to them and tell them what you want to get onto it. Yeah, of course. Okay. So we'll move on to the other part of the podcast now where we just ask the three questions where that we ask all of our guests. Um, yeah, so. Okay, so the first question for you, Dean, is what would you say are the three most important behaviours or traits for a physiotherapist in your experience and why? Um, so, oh, I'm not really prepared for this one, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I think you, you've got to be confident in your own abilities because uh, when you're working in an acute setting, you are going to meet some challenging people. Uh, you, you really, really are. People don't mean to be, but the demands of NHS working can get the better of everybody all the time. So be confident in your own abilities and be confident in your knowledge base. I think an element of flexibility as well and um, an ability to prioritise your caseload because you could be rattling along through your caseload doing fantastic and you really do the best things for your patient, but suddenly you get called somewhere else to do something else or it's uh, this patient's going home tomorrow and they just need um, you to review them. And that can knock your plans off um, completely the wrong way. So, so you just need to be able to adapt and be flexible. To those sorts of um to those sorts of things and a key thing for me as well is be approachable 
Um, I think sometimes as physios, we can be, certainly in an acute setting, we can be a little bit too stoic about um, the referrals that we take, certainly for a respiratory point of view and for a mobility point of view, in that we can be a little bit, this is our criteria for referral, we will not be moved. If you can't meet the criteria, no go. When in reality, you can build an excellent relationship and rapport with the, the staff on the ward by working with them a little bit, you know? Yes, there's no such thing as a um, quick, uh, you know, a quick check in uh, acute physiotherapy. But if you can just sort of bob in and say, right, listen, I don't think I need to see this person for this reason, but I'm going to write that for me. If you can say that and hand that over verbally, that is something that you should be willing to document as well. We would ask doctors to document something that we don't particularly agree with. So we should be doing the same, you know, so being approachable and sort of working with the nursing staff a little bit. Um, or the you know, doctors or anybody really. I think they're the key ones for me. Yeah, I think that the three traits that you've given are, we're starting to sort of see a trend with this, that a lot of physios are, are very much reading off the, the same hymn sheet. The, the second question then is, what excites you the most about physiotherapy? Um, I think it's this uh, really good understanding about how diverse physiotherapy is. Um, certainly through COVID, like I've already said, our profile has uh, increased unbelievably. But I think um, just generally now we are seeing uh, medical doctors giving uh, seminars and really praising the, the depth and breadth of the physio profession and how diverse it is. There is very few areas in a hospital where you will go and there won't be a physio attached to that service in some way. You will work on any sort of ward or uh, you know you go into paediatrics or uh, you will go into oncology you'll go almost anywhere you know apart from general outpatient services for investigations and things even in a and e departments there are therapists working there so it's just it just shows how far physio is building and i think um, the fact that there is you know uh, guys like yourself that are wanting to come in and support and join that join that um join the profession and join the um uh, uh, join everybody so you know it's those sorts of things it's how diverse it is and how well um established it is yeah i think um definitely more recently since covid physio has gone into the limelight and like we talked about at the start the respect from other medical professionals and it's especially the respiratory it's starting to go up and it's almost glamorous to be the respiratory therapist at the moment so it is it's very nice to see yeah of okay. course you know pre pre pre-covid everybody used to think we were a bit crazy when we used to get people to basically cough in his face but um you know with covid it's uh you know now we're the uh, now we're the stunt men of uh, nhs yeah yeah definitely the, the banner man uh, okay so the last question um potentially the hardest um you can take this whatever way you want to and um whichever way you you want to take it really so the question just is simply are you satisfied uh yeah i'm unbelievably satisfied um i think there's a big satisfaction from um our service the service that i currently work in um and how we've uh, adapted and developed to this um a massive satisfaction from our band fives you know they've come in uh, and for one full year they've not rotated they've just worked within our service uh, and it's a challenging service to come in and join especially you know there's those that have come out and 
they join an uh, uh, NHS trust and think, oh, as long as I don't get respiratory, I'll be fine. And then bang, they're straight into it for a year. And they've just took it under the belt and just worked forward. So, um, you know, just generally the team, the trust, the hospital and the NHS, really, I think it's really shown why uh, it's, uh, it is a bit of a national treasure, really, isn't it, you know? Um, and then from a, from a personal point of view, yeah, I'm, I'm very satisfied. I've, I've been given more and more opportunity during COVID to work with students like yourselves and um, start to get involved in those sorts of things. And um, my career is starting to move forward into working more and more with, with students. And um, it's, it's very, very exciting for me uh, now. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the future now as well. That's interesting that you said that about the the band fives and how they've stepped up. I was listening to um, one of the episodes of the Physio Matters podcast the other day, and yeah. he had a band seven. Oh, I can't think of her name, but she was a band seven in a similar role to you. She was um, a cute band seven, and she had said it, the exact same thing, that something that has given her immense satisfaction in the past year is how, is how the band fives have stepped up. Yeah, definitely. They've been they've been phenomenal, you know, absolutely phenomenal. Coming into the uh, complete unknown with nothing more than um, you know their uh, recently acquired skills from graduation, um, and they've just come in and cracked on in the middle of a pandemic. It's it's quality. It really, really is. They've done so well. Definitely. So that's it for episode four of the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify by typing the Student Physio Podcast Bradford and follow our Instagram and Twitter at UOB Physio Sock. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now.